Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 6. Remember that in Romans chapters 5 through 8, the gospel is giving us assurance. We are secure in Christ. We are secure in the salvation that he has given to us and provided for us. We are secure in his promises to save us. And we are assured of future glory. As Paul will go on to explain in these chapters, there is nothing that can somehow thwart the sovereign God in justifying his people and those people whom he has justified bringing to glory. Paul has explained in chapter 5 that by our faith in Jesus' death on the cross, we have been freed from the penalty of sin, which is death. Jesus took that penalty by offering himself his own life, offering it up in your place and in my place. He took the wrath that we deserved. We are made right with God. That is, we are justified in his courtroom, standing before the judge of the universe. We are brought into a right relationship with him. And so we have peace with God. He is no longer our enemy. We stand in grace. We even rejoice in suffering because as a justified people, God is at work in our lives to change us through suffering. And if you were to go from chapter 5 and skip to chapter 8, you would see how closely they mirror each other. How Paul just continues in chapter 8 with these great blessings and promises of glory. In chapter 8, he will introduce the life of the, the Holy Spirit, the difference that the indwelling, uh, ever-present Holy Spirit is for the Christian. But chapter 8 mirrors chapter 5 in a lot of ways. But before he can get to chapter 8, Paul has to first deal with the reality of sin. The fact that sin is still present and in operation. Even though Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, he has justified us, sin is still an active enemy. Sin is still an, an antagonist in our lives. And so chapters 6 and 7 answer the question... What does all of chapters 1 through 5 mean for life for someone who follows Jesus? What does being justified mean for us now? Does being freed from the penalty of sin have any effect on the power of sin in our lives today? Is there deliverance now, today, from sin. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, also, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Lord, every one of us who belongs to you struggles with sin. Every one of us is painfully aware of the presence of sin and its temptation. Lord, help us by your Spirit to grasp by faith what you say to us today in these words. These are your words. Amen. So Paul's answer to the question, is there deliverance now from the power of sin, is a resounding absolutely yes. Because the power of sin in your life has been broken. It has been broken. In fact, if you look here at verses 1 and 2, Paul declares that for the person who has been justified by faith alone in Jesus alone, continuing in sin is an impossible scenario. And by continuing in sin, he means going on in a life of sin without any kind of interruption or change. What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, he asks this question, and he asks it in this way, because back in chapter 5, verse 20, you may recall, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, meaning that God's grace is enough to overcome the penalty for sin, no matter how great the sin is or the amount of sin there is. And he, and he says there, in, back in chapter 5, that Because the law was given, sin was increased, meaning that we knew, we knew where the boundaries were. We knew what was wrong and what was right. And yet we continued to transgress it. We continued to persist in our rebellion. That increased sin. But God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to answer all of that rebellion, all of that sin. 
And that is good news for broken and sinful people like us. But Paul is keeping any of us from thinking that because we are justified, because we have been made right with God, sin just doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter how we live now. And every believer is confronted with the question, okay, if I've been forgiven from the penalty of sin, if the penalty of sin has been done away with, and I stand before God in a right relationship with him, and God's grace increases where there is sin, then how do I respond to sin? Do I ignore it? Do I accept it? Do I let it have its way because I'll just experience more grace? And there are some who would say that. They would say, hey, if you've got grace, go for it. Live however you want to. And there were some who were criticizing the Apostle Paul by saying, when you preach grace, Paul, all you're saying is that people can live however they want to. Because if the law doesn't bring about righteousness, then they can just reject the law entirely, say, I've got grace, I've been forgiven, I've been justified before God, and I can pursue any kind of lifestyle I want to. Paul screams, I think while tearing his hair out, by no means, God forbid, absolutely not. In fact, it's not even possible How can we who died to sin still live in it? That is a rhetorical question. It says there is no way that if you have died to sin, you can still live in that sin. There is a complete work of transformation going on here. Salvation can't be seen in any other way. It isn't just a state of being justified or right before God. It is a process by which your entire life is revolutionized it is renovated you are in the process of sanctification you are in the process of being made holy if you're not being sanctified you never were justified that is a package salvation means all of that but here paul introduces this new reality this new truth We have died to sin, which doesn't mean that you are a corpse, spiritually speaking, or something, and sin no longer has any appeal to you. Sin no longer is a danger to you. If that were true, what he says here in verses 11 through 14 would be meaningless. It would make no sense to consider yourselves dead to sin, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal bodies. None of that would make any sense if sin didn't still have some appeal to us, if we were no longer even temptable. No, when Paul says you have died to sin, he means that your relationship to sin has been severed forever. Forever. He means that how you see sin and your own rebellion and when you fall, that is an entirely different perspective now that you belong to him, now that you are justified, now that you are a Christian. 
I once heard someone say that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that an unbeliever enjoys his sin. An unbeliever enjoys what she's doing in rebellion, doesn't know any different. A Christian will still struggle with sin and still fall into sin, but they're miserable in it. They hate it. That's what Paul is saying. Your relationship to sin has been severed forever. Now, this is just one of several explanations that we find in the New Testament that explains that when we become Christians, we transfer from one kingdom to the other. To say that we have died to sin and that our relationship with sin is severed forever is another way of saying that we no longer belong to this realm, we belong to a new realm. For example, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has already transferred us, your citizenship, the realm in which you live has already been changed. He has already delivered us. Another example would be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. One of those verses that if you happen to have grown up in the church, you've probably memorized at some point. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the same truth. The old has passed away. The new has come. You are not still the old creation and the new creation. You are a new creation, even though sin is still present. The power of sin in your life is broken. And so today and probably next week, because we won't get through all of it today, we're going to see here in, ch in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, that the power of sin in your life is broken first by your union with Christ. That's verses 3 through 5. The power of sin in your life is broken by Christ's accomplished work, specifically his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's verses 6 through 10. And then we will see that the power of sin in your life is broken by your active resistance. That's verses 11 through 14. Okay. So we begin then, verses 3, 4, and 5. The power of sin is broken by your union with Christ. This is one of the richest truths in all of the Bible. That when you became a Christian... Your very identity, your very being was united to the person of Christ. And when Paul says here in verse 3, do you not know? He means you know these truths, but let me put the pieces together for you in a new way, in a way that you've, you don't know yet, you don't understand. Do you not know? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, the question always comes up in a, in a passage like this. 
when Paul talks about baptism here, what does he mean? Is he talking about water baptism? Because we practice water baptism as part of conversion, as part of becoming a Christian. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 as part of the Great Commission, go therefore teaching on baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was setting forth a pattern for his immediate apostles to then pass on down through his disciples, down through the ages, to practice baptism. And we see it happen in the book of Acts then. The first sermon that's ever preached after the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people are converted and baptized. So when Paul says baptism, is he talking about water baptism? Well, the word baptize means to immerse or to submerge. Now, it can mean to deluge, like, a, like to pour water over. And so some people think that it's okay to baptize by pouring water over. I probably am not going to have a lot of heartburn or die on that hill, okay? Because the word can mean that. But we practice immersion. That's the most basic meaning of the word, is that somebody is submerged into something. So Paul could simply mean that we are immersed into Christ. We are submerged into the person of Christ. And he doesn't necessarily have water baptism in mind. That is possible. On the other hand, we find a lot of times in the New Testament that, that faith and repentance, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and water baptism are all presented as components of our conversion, that when we become a Christian, all of these things take place. Even though not all of these different components are listed every time salvation or becoming a Christian is talked about. At times, the Bible uses any one of these words to stand for all of them. And I would understand, Paul, to be doing that here with the word baptism. Water baptism, by, and by the time Paul writes Romans, water baptism is the common practice of the church. The idea that someone would be a Christian and not be baptized was a, a foreign idea. That if, if there was this, if the reality was presented to the Apostle Paul that, hey, he's a Christian and he hasn't been baptized, the Apostle Paul would have looked at you kind of funny and said, what do you mean? Any Christian in this day and age would have said that. What do, you, what do you mean he hasn't been baptized? That's part of becoming a Christian. That's part of conversion. Because conversion is not just a private matter. It's also a public one. It's a corporate one. And so when he says baptism, he is using the water baptism to stand for the whole experience of becoming a Christian. So this isn't something that replaces faith, like you can be baptized but not believe and somehow baptism saves you or makes you a Christian, but that when he talks about baptism, it assumes faith. It assumes the gift of the Spirit. It assumes repentance. All of those things come together. But it is this this outward act of being baptized as part of being a Christian that captures 
the reality that Paul is getting at. And that is, you have died to sin. And this is how you have died to sin then. When you were converted, you were made one with the person of Jesus Christ. You were baptized into union with him. And when you were baptized into union with him, you were united to his death. His death was counted toward you. Now, this doesn't just mean that when you became a Christian, you were united with his death. And so all of the benefits and all of the blessings of Jesus' death were then given to you and you received all those benefits. That is true. But Paul isn't just saying that God counts to us all of the blessings that Jesus' sacrifice, his death, accomplished for us. He is saying we are actually incorporated into Jesus' death. And really, this kind of goes back to what he was saying at the end of chapter 5, when he was saying that in Adam all sinned. But those who by faith receive God's grace are in Christ. And you belong to one or the other. Every person belongs to one or the other. So we are incorporated then into Jesus' death. Now, according to verse 4, the end goal, though, is really not death, but new life. New life. And the key to moving from death to life is burial. This is why Paul changes the picture here, not just to death, but to mentioning specifically burial. It is the transition from the old to the new. We were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, for this reason, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it is this passage that has uh, helped create the way that many churches and Christians practice baptism. We even do it here to some degree where we take a person when we get them in the water, whether that's a tank or we're out in a lake or wherever it is that we are, and we lay them down and then we pick them back up we are picking up on the imagery of what Paul says here. Someone who's buried and is raised to new life. When I was growing up, I grew up in church, and I grew up in a Baptist church, and when our pastor did baptisms, he would quote this verse as he actually baptized them and raised to walk in newness of life. And everyone, yay, it's better. What Paul is saying is not that baptism is a physical picture of that process, though. Paul is saying that baptism in and of itself is the act that, that shows the conversion that we are buried with him. It is the act of baptism where you lay somebody down like that, or whether you just dunk them on there, or whether you're pouring water over their head, whatever it is, that act of baptism is the thing that shows and demonstrates that we are buried 
with him by baptism into death. And that the goal of that death is that we would live new life. Jesus couldn't be raised if he wasn't buried. And here's the point of the comparison. Jesus was raised from the dead to new life, and his new life was a life of glory. That's why Paul says here, you notice this, that he was raised from the dead not by the Father, but by the glory of the Father. And what Paul is capturing by that is he's saying that it was to glory. It was the Father's power and glory that raised Jesus and that Jesus in being raised by the glory of the Father was glorious. That his new life, his resurrected life was one of glory. So the goal of Jesus' death was to live this new and glorious life. Paul is saying, likewise, the goal of your death in Christ is to walk in new life now, just as Jesus now lives as the glorified Lord. And that just as Jesus' resurrection, just as certain as it was to happen And as certainly as it was accomplished, so as certainly you have been raised to walk in the newness of life. The new life is now. So being buried means that the break with sin is final and complete. Why? Because the transfer has already been made. You are already in the kingdom of his beloved son. Already the old has passed away. Already the new has come. This is something God has already done in your life. Paul seals his point with the logic of verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That logically flows. It has to be. The power of sin over your life is broken because you are united with him in his death. You died. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when you come to Christ, when you're converted, there is no hanging on to the old. There is no hanging on to the old life. Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. Because you cannot enter the narrow gate to eternal life with handling all your baggage. All of of your desires and your willfulness and the way you think life ought to go. And self-authority and self-mastery. No one can enter that way. You have to die. 
You were united with him in his death, and you will be united with him in his resurrection. So watch. Because at conversion, you were united with Christ, the power of his death works forward toward you. It works forward in time, rendering you dead to sin. The power of his resurrection, his glory, his new life works backward through time because you will one day be raised with him. You one day will be resurrected and be transformed into a glorious new life. The power of that future promise works backward to empower you to walk in the newness of life right now. So in one sense, everything that Paul is saying here transcends time and how we understand sequence of events. Jesus has already died and been resurrected. Because you have been united with him in those things, you have died and will one day experience the same kind of resurrection Jesus did because he'll call you up out of the grave. Because the past is true and you have embraced it by faith and you have embraced the promise by faith that you will be resurrected in the end, the power of what God has promised is already working backwards to empower you now to live this new life. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I have thought it all week long while studying this. And that is, it does not feel this way. It does not feel this way today. And it didn't feel this way yesterday either. But you see, to find victory, to know victory, we begin with the truth. We begin with the truth of what God says he has done. God has already declared you just. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you stand before God, made righteous, declared justified before him? God has already declared that to be so. God has already declared that because you have believed in him, you're already dead. Your old life is gone. And that the new life has come. That is our position. That is the power of his grace today. You see, to know victory, we have to let the truth the reality of what God has said determine how we live. Not what we feel. Not what we are told by others. But by walking in faith. This is what Paul means when he says to walk by faith and not by sight. One of the enemy's greatest lies in your life one of his greatest tactics is to convince you that these things cannot be true. That because you struggle with sin, you must be under its power still. 
But like everything else in the Christian life, it begins with believing what God has said, taking God at his word, that you have died to sin. You have died to sin. And by trusting God then, you already walk in a newness of life. Lord Jesus, what power there is in these verses. What encouragement. And Lord, as your people who stand before you in grace, who stand before you justified, we ask that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to believe your words to us today. We rejoice that you have already transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. We rejoice that you have already made us new, that the old has gone, and we rejoice that one day you will complete this work of making us holy, of gaining victory over sin day by day, that you will complete that and that that victory will be ended that the penalty of sin that has been paid for, that the power of sin, which is, which is already vanquished, Lord, that the very presence of sin will one day be removed. And you will change us in glory. But Lord, my heart remains concerned for those who would hear your word and have no hunger or thirst for righteousness. No hunger, no desire to be free of sin. It is not your people who are weighed down by sin and struggle against it and hate it, but it is those who think they have nothing to be worried about. They feel no weight because they are not yet justified. Lord, I pray that you would convict, that your mercy would be made clear and bright, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would truly be saved, that they would be converted, that they would drop all of the idols and all of the, the um, self-mastery that they cling to, that they would repent and turn to you, see see their own state, that they would fear in a right way the wrath of God which is to come and that they would be saved. In your name, we proclaim all of these things and ask them, amen.